Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 30th, 2021, and my guest is journalist and author Michael Easter. We're going to be talking about his book, The Comfort Crisis. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me on, Russ. What is The Comfort Crisis? So in The Comfort Crisis, I argue that, you know, a lot of the comforts and conveniences that are a part of our daily life really influence our daily lives, everything from the fact that we don't have to put in effort for our food, the fact that our food is so calorie dense, the fact that we live in at 72 degrees and don't face challenge in modern life. It's great, but at the same time, it's come with a lot of downsides. So it's associated with a lot of our common physical and mental health problems. So sort of get at that question and what it means to us and what it's done to us. I spent more than a month in the Arctic backcountry. Um, I traveled about 30,000 miles around the world, met with Interesting characters ranging from researchers at Harvard to doctors at the Mayo Clinic, uh, special forces soldiers, Buddhist leaders in Bhutan, uh, etc. And I'm going to turn off the air conditioning in here right now. I just realized that it's on. Uh, I turned it on because it's kind of warm in this room. And I thought, you know, if I turn it off, it'll be good for the audio. But what if I get hot and uncomfortable? And the answer is, it's good for me. So hang on one sec. We may may cut that, Michael, but I'm just going to turn off the air one sec. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Well, but what's wrong with comfort? Comfort's good. I like comfort. I like 72. Actually, I like about 71. And when it's 72, I think, hmm, it's a little warm in here. And I get it just right. Same with the temperature of my shower. Same with the food. I want it spiced correctly, cooked correctly. Oh, if it's overdone, I, ugh. I mean, we really are, these are all, of course, classic first world, so-called first world problems, but I, I'm, I'm in that boat. Most of us are in that boat. What's wrong with it? Well, we all are, right? So if you think about how humans evolved, we evolved in these uncomfortable, challenging, trying environments. And so developing this drive to do whatever was comfortable for us, whether that be avoiding an environment that's too hot or too cold. That's always finding shelter. That is when we have food, eating as much of it as possible because food was at a premium, avoiding unnecessary movement. All these things, you know, we are, we default into comfort. So this kept us alive for millions of years. Then in the last hundred years, you start to see a lot of progress, right? So we still have these drives to be comfortable, but the world is now so comfortable in many ways that we don't have to move. When we have food, we have really calorie-dense food, and we still have these drives to eat as much of it as possible. We avoid all risk, which is great when you're in a savanna with lions and you know other dangers. But now it kind of oversteps these boundaries, and we fear things like speaking in public, which could improve our lives, or taking risks in business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, and you argue, and you have lots of evidence from various studies, some of which might even be true, but let's put that to the side. Uh, You argue that this is actually bad for us, right? Uh, Normally, I would argue that you would think 
possibly intuitively, common sense might argue, the more comfortable, the better. Less stress on the system. System's going to be healthier. I'll do fine. You suggest, of course, that that's not the case, that we've got too much comfort. Uh, what's it do to us? Yeah, so I, I tend to think about it as sort of a U-shaped curve, where if you have this really hard, um, crazy trying lifestyle, that's probably going to have some ill side effects, right? At the same time, if you are too comfortable, so take something like activity, right? It's like over time with how jobs have changed, uh, we've essentially engineered activity out of our lives. And one of the biggest drivers of our high rates of chronic disease right now is a lack of cardiovascular fitness because we no longer have to get out and move. And this, you know, you can apply this to a lot of different things we face in our life, like our food system, right? If you're always eating the most comfortable calorie rich food, that's going to have some side effects. Yeah. I like, uh, Sim Talib says in one of his books, the side of the, uh, person pulling up to the hotel in the, in the cab, the, the bellhop takes the bags in for the person, and then half an hour later, the same person's in the gym lifting weights to make up for the fact they didn't carry his bags into the hotel. And I, you know, we do that a lot. I'm, I just moved. We're looking for a permanent apartment. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't want an apartment too close to work because I want a nice, difficult walk. <laughs> I'm yeah, hoping. Exactly. I'm hoping. And if and if and if we end up too close, I'll just have to not go straight. I'll have to pretend I live uh, farther away. Um, <laughs> So some of this is health, literally, physically damaging to us in, in various ways. But I, mm-hmm. I found, what I found most interesting about the book is the, is the mental and psychological challenge of too much comfort. Uh, having just moved to Israel, uh, I'm way out of my comfort zone. Don't speak Hebrew. I've never been the president of a college before. So I'm, I'm stimulated. I'm way, I may be in the wrong. I may push way past into that other region of the U-shaped curve. But, but I think the psychological impacts, not so much of stress. Um, you know, the fact that my flight to Newark was five minutes from Newark to connect Israel and then decided, let's go back to Washington. That was stressful. I don't think that was good for me. I'm just guessing. But I'm more interested in the, the lack of mental stimulation that comes from the comfort in our life in general, and I think you're very um, timely in your argument that we've we've we're missing something in America and in the West generally because of that comfort. What is it, what are the mental and psychological things you're you're worrying about? Yeah, I think there's a handful of things that have really changed in our lives. I think one of them is that you know we aren't physically challenged anymore, or we don't really face a lot of challenge. So if you think of even, you know, in 1990, there's this rise of helicopter parenting, right? So all of a sudden, you know, kids used to go play outside. They used to have these challenges. They used to get in fist fights. They used to learn something along the way. Then there's these high profile kidnapping cases. And all of a sudden parents go, "Uh Oh, you can't go outside anymore. Now that kidnapping rate wasn't actually rising that much. Um, But what you find in these kids who have been born after 1990 is a lot higher rates of mental health problems, especially anxiety and depression are off the charts. They're like two to three times higher. And I think a lot of the reason for this, there's this concept in psychology called toughening. And it basically states that 
you know, having way too many challenges in your life, sort of back to that U-shaped curve, is not good for you. It results in um, poor mental health outcomes, even poor physical health outcomes. But people who have too little challenge in their life, they have equally poor mental and physical health. There is a certain amount of challenge that humans need. And I think that over time, we keep uh, removing these sorts of challenges that we used to face. So if you think of um, something like a rite of passage, right, through nearly all of time and all these different cultures, what did young people do? We had this person who was at point A in their life. And we need them to be a producer, to be robust, strong. So what do we do? We would usually send them out into the wild to do something really hard because along the way, they are realizing that they're probably more capable than they thought they were. They're coming up against these challenges. They're having to persist and they're learning about something about themselves along the way. And once they return to their tribe or whatever it is, their group, um, they've improved as a person and they've learned that they have this sort of gear on board that can teach them something about themselves. Well, you talk about uh, boredom. We have a lot of interesting uh, thoughts on boredom. I, and you talk about how the cell phone has become the alternative to boredom for most of us. If we're not, we don't have it with us. We're scared. It's frightening. And then when we're bored, we just turn to it. We have so many things on it that, that can bemuse us, distract us, entertain us, teach us if, if we want. Uh, but it, it strikes me that, that this is not unrelated to the comfort crisis and that you know, social interaction is very challenging for many of us. And the phone is a, is a source of comfort for us that we don't have to put ourselves out there. We don't have to worry if people are going to like us. We don't have to worry about maintaining a friendship. We're friends with our phone. Our phone's very happy to have us. Um, and I think these two things go together to some extent in, in modernity and in modern times. Um, and what we lose, of course, is is socializing that is, I think, an important part of, of our human, the human experience. Yeah. So a couple things there is, so I'll tell you a story. So when I was in the Arctic, we were up there for more than a month and um, we were hunting caribou. Now, the thing about hunting caribou is it is a lot of waiting. You are waiting for these animals to migrate, right? And you're trying to predict where you think they're going to migrate. Now, we were wrong I, a lot of the time. Can I interrupt the story for a second, Michael? Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about your trip to the Arctic. And I want to let listeners know that the hunting of caribou by Michael and his buddies is a really interesting and ethical experience to, to my somewhat to my surprise so i, I want to let listeners who might be alarmed at this turn in the conversation to be reassured that it's going to turn out okay continue yeah, <laughs> maybe even start over sorry about that yeah no worries um so okay i'll start over so when we um when we're in the arctic we're hunting caribou and hunting caribou is a lot of waiting because they are, uh, you're trying to catch the animals as they're migrating from their, from their wintering to their summering grounds. And so I found myself in an interesting position, which is that I was bored again, right? Because up in the Arctic, my cell phone doesn't work. I couldn't get a single bar within 100 miles. I didn't bring books. I didn't bring magazines. Surely didn't bring a laptop. So I found myself doing things like reading the ingredient labels on cliff bars and reading the tags on my outdoor gear. Uh, and when that got boring, I was like, Oh, I came up with some ideas for magazine stories. I wrote some of the book. Now, I told you all that to tell you this. If I were home, I would have probably, when I felt that little tinge of boredom, 
pulled out my cell phone, right? Because that's a really easy escape. Now, the average person spends more than 11 hours a day engaging with digital media, and that's across all formats. So that's cell phones, that's television, that's behind your laptop screen, et cetera. But boredom, you know, I argue in the book, uh, is, can actually be beneficial. So as humans evolved, we would get bored and it was a way that our mind sort of told us, hey, whatever you're doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So it's this evolutionary discomfort that's like, hey, go do something else. Like this isn't productive what you're doing. So if you think about it, as we're hunting, like we were, you know, we would have actually really needed food, you know? So it would have been like, okay, well, go pick some potatoes or something, do something else. Nowadays, uh, our escape from boredom is often not something that is productive. It is uh, a descent into Instagram to watch more dog videos or whatever it is, you know? Um, So I make the case in the book that we sort of need these times of boredom. Like I think that the phone, uh, cell phones are really unique because they're on us all the time. But I also argue that um, we can't solely focus on reducing our, our phone time because a lot of times people I've talked to, when they reduce their screen time on their phone by an hour, they go, well, what do I do now? And they go watch Netflix, you know, <laughs> and your brain really doesn't know the difference between these two things. Um, boredom uh, is associated with uh, more creativity. I think that also back to your question about why our mental, what's going on with our skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression. I think that, I think that all this stimulation we have has something to do with it. So when you're bored, you're, you're kind of allowing your brain to rest. You're going inward. Whereas when you're focusing on your phone uh, or another screen, you're more outward and your brain is actually working. So I think there's this like myriad effects of all this digital technology that is just consumed our lives. I mean, you think in a hundred years, we went from nothing, right? To, to deal with boredom, we would do something productive. We would have those social moments as you spoke to. And now a lot of people just, you know, pull out their phone, watch Netflix. The irony is for me is that um, while you were describing that, I was filling in your sentence. I was thinking, and now we retreat into our cell phones. And yet, What you did, there's another use of the word retreat. I've talked about the silent meditation retreats that I've done uh, on the program before. And yours, although you went with two other people and you did talk to each other, certainly there were extended periods of silence on your uh, Arctic trip. And um, that's a different kind of retreat than into the phone. Into the phone is uh, you're keeping your mind busy with something external. And in a real retreat, uh, the kind you went on or the kind I've been on or the kind you can have if you choose to, your brain retreats into itself and it allows a chance for it to go places it wouldn't otherwise go if somebody wasn't talking to you, the video wasn't playing, even the podcast wasn't playing. So I think that's a really um, – it's an incredibly powerful experience. I could speak for myself and you speak in your book about it. It is um, – most people say, well, I'd, that'd be horrible. I'd hate that. Or, you know, I'd go crazy. And of course, you do it first and you think, I, I got to get out of here. You know, get me out of here. But as you, since you can't, in your case, the plane had left, <laughs> couldn't get back. Yeah. And in my case, uh, I went with a buddy to my first silent meditation retreat and I'd promised to take us both home. So I couldn't leave. Uh, and I couldn't ask him if he was ready to go home <laughs> one day in because it was a silent retreat. So, um, 
I think there's something really powerful there that's not obvious to until you've experienced it. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so one, this is a funny line. I was talking to this neuroscientist who studies boredom and he says, you know, what people do with boredom now is like junk food for the mind. It's cell phone, it's the TV. And, you know, to, to bring it back to discomfort, to your point, yeah, when you sit without that easy cure to not be in your own head, you might find that the person inside your head is a raving lunatic. You're going, you know, you're thinking about random weird stuff and you're like, what is this? But I think sometimes you can find some really interesting stuff in there. Oh, yeah. So I'm not saying that boredom is automatically going to give you these good ideas. It's not automatically going to, you know, improve your life. I think you're, I think you're going to find that there is some stuff where you're just going, what is this? But you're also going to find probably some stuff where you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. I had never really thought of that. And some of it's just about yourself. It's not about the next project or you know something. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily productive. I guess the other way to think about it, it's not so much for me. It's not so much boredom is a good idea. It's that non-external stimulation is a good idea. And some people will say, well, yeah, but that's boring. We're, you know, I need something to entertain myself. And the answer is, well, maybe not. You know, maybe you could look at the sky, listen to the the noise. There's a, you talk about how much uh, sound, human sound there is in the world and how little we notice it. And I think that's so profound. I mean, so many times in my life recently, I've stopped to just listen. Um, you hear a lot of things if you listen. They're, you're, you're hearing them. You're just not listening. And they're, yeah. some of them are really unpleasant and not particularly good for you. You know, certain discordant hums from the various appliances in your house, the street noise. But there's some birds. There's some nice things out there. And... Um, and as you point out in the book, you're, you can listen to yourself. Your body is making some noises if you really get into enough quiet. Yeah, yeah. So when I was in, the, was in the Arctic, it was fascinating because I had one morning where I woke up really early and the sun was just coming up and I just walked out on the tundra and just kind of looked around and I could hear my heart beating. And when I say beating, it's like a kick drum inside your chest. It is so quiet up there because there's nothing around for hundreds of miles. And then you start to hear this kind of, and it's carotid artery pumping brain, pumping blood into my brain. And that sort of silence is, it is eerie at first, but then you start to really like it. It calms you down. So I talked to a guy who, um, owns oddly enough, the world's quietest place. This is a, um, it's uh, a totally soundproof room and it's in Minnesota and they use it for a lot of different, um, different experiments. And, you know, he, he talks about when people go in there at first, it's uncomfortable to be in that much silence because you hear yourself, right. But all of a sudden it calms people down. And we know that uh, being around too much noise and in too much noise all the time is not great for our health because it's sort of like this slow drip of um, stress hormones can result in that. Because you think about in the environments we evolved in, they were silent like it was up in the Arctic. Anytime that there was a really loud noise, bad news. it was, <laughs> yeah, bad news. We got a storm rolling in. There's an animal who wants to maybe have you for dinner, uh, et cetera. But nowadays, it's kind of like we have this constant low-level noise that still spurts the same response in a way. Let's talk about the idea um, of a masogi, a Japanese uh, concept, and then we'll um, talk about yours, your masogi, which is this trip. I want to set it up uh, for the listeners, though, because I want to talk a little bit about hunting first. But talk about the masogi idea that, that maybe gave you the idea for the trip or at least gave you something, a way to frame it. 
Yeah. So I meet this guy named Marcus Elliott. And there's a couple things you need to know about Marcus Elliott. One is that he's a little bit of a seeker. So he's been going to Burning Man since Burning Man was a thing. He's okay. Burning Man, old, old school. Uh, number two, uh, and he got himself through college as well by counting cards. Uh, but then the second thing you need to know is that he's brilliant. So he went to Harvard Med School, um, decided he didn't want to be a doctor after he graduates, decides he wants to totally rev- revolutionize sports science. And he ends up doing it. So he has this facility. He worked for a bunch of teams, and then he opened his own facility, and he basically applies uh, big data, um, quantifies human movement and performance, uses a lot of tech and AI. Uh, but he also knows that not everything that improves a person's potential can necessarily be measured. There's sort of these immeasurables that you know certain athletes have. It's like, why are there certain athletes where at the end of a game, when it's tied, you go, give that person the ball. Cause they're going to, they're going to do this thing. They have this gear, right? So to try and get at that, he does this thing called Masogi. Now it's uh, he took the term from an ancient uh, Japanese uh, tale. And um, the idea is that once a year he gets a group of people and they do one really hard sort of kooky task. So uh, for example, one year him and his friends, they got an 85 pound boulder and they walked it five miles underneath the Santa Barbara channel. So one would dive down, carry this thing for 10 yards, dive back up. The next guy would go. Uh, they did one year where they um, paddle, stand up paddleboarded 25 miles across the channel. And they'd never really stand up paddleboarded before, right? Um, so there's two rules to Masogi. Rule number one is that it has to be really hard. And he defines this by saying you should have a true 50% chance of uh, finishing this thing. And number two is that you can't die. So they do have like safety people when they do stuff in the water, but. Try not um, to die at least. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to die. And what he's getting at here um, is this, is that when a person goes out and does something truly challenging in nature, they're going to have these moments, right? Where they go. I don't, I don't think I can do this. Like I'm going to have to quit. You know, I can feel my ed, the edge coming on and I can't cross that edge, but by kind of putting one foot in front of the other, or, you know, getting that next perfect stroke in on a paddleboard, they pass that edge and they're still going. And these, you can look back and go, well, wait a minute. I thought that was my edge, but here I am past it, you know, and where else in my life might I be selling myself short? So you see, um, to sort of back up about, this sounds kooky, right? This sounds totally weird. Stupid. Yeah, somewhat stupid. But you see these Nasogi myths and practices like this throughout time. So think of someone, think of the work of Joseph Campbell, right? He identifies these hero's journeys. And the basic setup is that you leave the comfort of your home you go into this very trying middle ground where there is a high degree of failure, high risk of failure. And then you come out the other side and you're improved as a human. You've transitioned to a new person, Campbell argues. And you even see this in the military. What is the point of hell week? We take you from the comfort of your normal life. We put you through a really trying middle ground. When you come out the other side, you even get a ranger tab or a green beret that signifies you're a new person. And this is the same setup as rites of passage. Like I talked about earlier, right? We need these sort of moments where we learn something about ourselves. You know, really what it is, it is a 
psychological and even spiritual challenge, they argue, that just masquerades as a physical challenge. And these are things that humans used to have to do all the time as we evolved. We used to have to do face down these physical challenges often, whether that was from hunting, whether that was from migrating from summering to wintering grounds, um, whether that was from a tiger lurking in the bushes. So the idea is that you know, the world, uh, we've removed a lot of challenge from our life, especially physical challenge. You know, we, we often have intellectual challenges at work, but these aren't things that we necessarily um, evolve to face. So Marcus is sort of arguing, I want to reintroduce some metaphorical tigers into people's lives because they're going to learn something about themselves from that. So the interesting question there for me, and I'm, you know, I thought your story of, you know, we, we've described your misogi as, You've, you've described it. I went in the Arctic for a month and hunted caribou. It doesn't really capture it. We're going to talk about it in more detail. Uh, incredibly, I'll tell you how effective your story is. I, I was cold reading it. That's a good sign. Uh, and, there's, and I was tired during parts of it, very tired. We'll, we'll get to those moments in your, in your month there. But I've always been fascinated by this question of whether – you know, things like that. And I think they're intellectual versions of it. That, you know, they don't have, they have a different kind of impact, I think. You know, I, I signed up for a couple of classes as an undergrad, I shouldn't have, and I made it through. I, I think that helped me. I think knowing that I could do that helped me. But I wonder if it's more than that. I think it's it's not just, oh, you get, like one, one way of describing these are, well, you get more confidence when you when you succeed. And in, especially if it's 50-50, you don't pick a a Masogi that you, that you know you can really do. It's just a little hard. These are things that are more than hard. They're mm-hmm. they're they're greatly difficult, um, and they don't have to be silly. Obviously, um, you know they they could just be physically demanding in ways that you haven't experienced, so you don't know whether you're going to be able to finish them or not. Yes. Um, it's just interesting to me whether this is you're suggesting this is an intrinsic part of the human experience is to strive and sometimes fail and sometimes succeed. Um, obviously, the journey itself, the trying of itself, is part of the growth that comes from it. It's not just, oh, I did it, and now I have more confidence. It's it's just an incredible piece of your life, if, if nothing else. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? You think it's – it, you just finished one. What, and what did it do, do for you besides – it made you more confident? Presumably. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's confidence. I think you also, you know, we're not forced to do these physical things in nature anymore. And, um, I think you find that people get a lot of reward from that. Um, so sort of, you mentioned, you know, the idea of 50, 50, um, that's the beauty of it is that one person's 50% is not the same as another person's right. So, you know, for me, it was a month in the Arctic. Uh, I went up there with a guy whose name is Donnie Vincent. He's a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. You know, you could send him up there for a year with a Q-tip. Maybe that would be his, right? <laughs> but then for my mother, it could be, you know, I haven't hiked to the top of that mountain I look at every day on my commute to the grocery store or whatever. Maybe she could do that, you know, three, four miles or something like that. Um, I think we do get something out of it. I think there is something that really, and it's hard to describe hard to describe. can't be measured again. Um, but when you find yourself in this position where you really want to quit and you are seriously doubting yourself, but you don't quit, there's like some really deep satisfaction that comes from that. 
that I don't think that we are often, we often get through our everyday lives. We no longer have to do these things. And I think that there is a, a really good reason why these sort of practices existed throughout time and space. You know, it's not like the word got out. It's like people just were naturally doing this. And well, why is that? You know, so I don't know. It's unmeasurable, <laughs> but there's something there. And maybe you try it and you don't find that something, but maybe you do and you do. Did, have you read Into Thin Air by John Krakauer? I have, yes. So that's a story of a group of people who decide to, it's a Masogi for sure. They decide to climb Mount Everest and they're not veteran mountain, mountaineering folk. And it ends really badly. Um, it, it ends with death, disfigurement. It's a very uh, powerful story about human beings under stress. And I walked away from that book thinking, that's one of the stupidest things I've ever read about people trying to do. I didn't, you know, that, well, I did it because the challenge was there. So I'm not, that was probably not a 50 50. It turned out uh, badly. It doesn't mean, and it mm-hmm. violated rule two as well uh, yes. about death. But, but I think what made your story so powerful, let's, let's go into it now, is that you didn't just move a boulder 80, you know, five miles underwater, which strikes me as it was sort of vaguely interesting, but <laughs> not, not really. Um, yeah. But what you did was rather <laughs> extraordinary. So let's talk about first the ethics of the hunting that you did and what was required. Because it makes it sound like, oh, you, want, you went there, you waited. When they came along, the caribou came along, you shot them. Uh, and it sounded like you killed a bunch of them, by the way, when your earlier decision. We went caribou hunting. Yeah, we, every day we went out and shot some. It's not what you did. So talk about yeah. the ethics. It's very powerful, and I, I was very moved by it. Uh, talk about the ethics of, of the experience and uh, what the plan was and then what actually uh, some of what happened. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> I signed on for this trip. Um with this guy, Donnie, who I mentioned, and he spends a lot of time in these really extreme, um, interesting places doing these hunting films that I like to describe as more like planet earth, but with hunting, they are more, um, it's kind of an intellectual journey, each of his films. And I think they're, they're worth watching. There's one called who we are that is on YouTube. It's set. It's just the seven minute sort of teaser to what he does. I think it's worth watching. Yeah. We'll but, link to it. Um, so Donnie invites me up and he says, you know, I think you should, I think you should hunt. And my initial reaction was, I'm a journalist. I don't get involved, you know? And, um, you know, he told me, I think you'd really understand why I go up there and what the point of this is if you did hunt. And I had to kind of look at my motivations for that quick, not doing that. And I think part of it was that, you know, I didn't want to cross what I presumed would be a pretty heavy emotional barrier. You know, um, I eat meat. I have my entire life. I think 95% of Americans do, but I didn't necessarily want to involve myself in the life cycle. Like that's a, that was, uh, that was unknown territory for me. And so we went up there and, um, I think it took about two weeks because hunting is very hard. I think, I think the average person doesn't realize that it's, it's very challenging and not to mention we, um, we were hunting for the oldest animals we could find. So an animal that was over eight years, because if you hunt an animal that is older, it often improves the health of the herd as a whole. And, you know, we weren't just going to hunt any given thing. And 
at one point, uh, after a lot of failure, we're sitting on this ridge and there is a herd of caribou um, across the valley and on another um, hill. So probably, you know, two miles away. But we realized, you know, if they keep moving um, in the direction they're going, they're going to eventually cross this saddle into this other valley. And if we can position ourselves on the other side of that saddle, we'll be sort of hidden and in a good position. So we get up and we start moving. And this is a way, this is, this is after being dropped by a two seater plane in the middle of nowhere, literally nowhere and living in a teepee um, in 70 mile an hour winds and for weeks and having nothing going on. Right. No, you're not like hitting and missing. You're like shooting and missing. You just haven't even identified a target except I think one point and it's, it disappears and goes over the ridge and it's gone. And so it's, as you said, it's a lot of waiting. So what happens? Yeah. And we, yeah, I mean, we were carrying everything we needed to survive on our backs and and all that. How much is is that? Uh, Average, I would say 80 pounds for for the pack weight. Yeah. It's, it was, it was heavy. I would have stayed where the plane dropped me off. And when they came back, I'd be happy to see them, Uh, (laughs) but you didn't. How, How far did you walk in? Um, so we get dropped off and then we would use a land, walk. by the way, it's not an airport, just to be clear. It's the top yeah, of the you hill. land on the tundra and these little planes, planes that are about the size of a Snickers bar, actually. <laughs> and, um, so then we'd set up camp and we kind of move out from there and then we'd occasionally move camp just depending on what was happening with the animals. Um, but so we start moving to get on the other side of the saddle. Once we get there, we can really stand up and sort of crank to get in position. And as I am doing this, I told Donnie, okay, like I'll hunt. I had purchased a hunting tag from the state of Alaska. So I have sort of committed to this, but at the same time, I'm like, you don't actually have to hunt right now. And I had my reservations, yet I am carrying this rifle across the tundra. So we get to a point where they think we think they're going to start crossing the saddle. We dump our packs. I have the rifle. We hit the ground and we army crawl in 200 yards pop up and look, there's nothing there. Another hundred yards, um, pop up and look, I'm looking through the rifle scope. Uh, Donnie is with me looking through binoculars and we see antlers appear at the apex of the saddle. And there's one set of antlers and there's two and three and four and five and the herd is crossing and they've done just as we sort of anticipated. And they start to come into focus and we're looking at them and there's one in the group, um, that we see his antlers are sort of have this strange hitch when he walks. Turns out he's limping. He's been injured somehow. He's very old. And you can, you can gauge their age um, based on a variety of things. But one of the best ways is, uh, is antlers. A lot of times they'll get really big antlers when they're seven, eight years old. Um, and they become really complex. But when they get even older than that, the antlers aren't as big, but they maintain that complexity. So it's like it's a, it's a real sign of age. And the, the herd is moving in. I'm still like, oh my, oh my gosh, you know, is this uh, actually happening? I got a lot of anxiety and reservations and, you know, they're 300 yards in, 200 yards in, 150 yards in. So this is the point where, you know, they're going to be closest to us because we're kind of at their flank. And this animal keeps going in and out of the herd, the one with the limp that we'd identified. So I couldn't really get him in a good, um, in, in the site well. And then they're at 160 and 170 and 180. And Donnie just kind of motions over to me and goes, Hey, 
if you don't want to pull the trigger, you don't have to pull the trigger. But if you're going to pull the trigger, you have to do it now. And right as he said that, I'm looking at down the scope and the herd sort of parts. And there's that one uh, lone caribou with a limp just standing there. And I take a deep breath and I pull the trigger. Then I pull it again and the caribou falls. And at that moment, my reaction, I mean, my heart sank and it was like, what have you done? There is no coming back from this one. Like this is going to forever, like this is heavy, you know? And so we go to where the caribou is and the only sign that it was living was just the slightest trickle of blood coming down its neck. And, you know, his uh, hair is kind of quaking in the Arctic breeze and it's just down on the tundra. And that hit me really heavy. And Donnie was a great person to go with because he, he understands the emotion that comes into it. So he says, you know, Hey, I'm going to go get uh, your pack because we dumped all our stuff. And so I just sat with it for a while. And that the feeling is it's hard to describe, but the, what I can say is that I felt the most alive and yet depressed I've ever felt in my life. Totally new wave of emotion. I've just never felt. And I felt a lot of regret. Donnie eventually comes back and um, then we start to field dress the animal so we can take it back to camp, um, all of it. And as we, you know, cut it open and started um, getting the meat, my mind sort of shifted because, you know, Donnie remembers me saying, oh, it's meat, you know? And so I had this realization because I'm taking all that meat home. We're taking every usable part of the animal back with us. And I had this realization thought, buddy, you eat meat every single day. And never once have you ever felt an iota of emotion when you eat meat. And here you are now. And look at you, right? There's a strange disconnect there. And so I think that that process made me so much more grateful for the easy access we have to meet today. It also made me realize what a buy-in it is, right? Like there's a heavy emotional buy-in um, to eating meat. It made me w- more aware. And you would think that as a person um, hunts, they would start eating more meat. The opposite has been true for me since I returned home because I kind of realize what goes into it. Um, and this got me thinking not only that, you know, for any life to go on, another form of life has to die, right? This is a life cycle. Like it inserts you in the life cycle, which is, I think, something that um, we don't need to be inserted in anymore. And it also got me thinking about um, my own mortality, you know, that eventually I'm going to die and my atoms are going to be used somehow, you know, and, um, and I will say, um, it's not, you know, my mind really shifted from regret to gratitude, I think is the, is the the way that I would phrase it. Gratitude for, um, you know, that animal and the place I was in, but also all meat in our food system that, um, I think it needs a lot of improvements. Um, but the fact that we have access to, to food is like unbelievable. When you were field dressing the caribou, did you talk? 
I don't remember if you talked about that in the book. How long did it take to? Uh, yeah, it took, to it took about an hour, an hour or two hours. I don't know. Time was kind of <laughs> a little wonky right then because I was so kind of in the moment. I would say it took about two hours and caribou weigh about 400 pounds. So, um, you know, we got every usable part of the animal we could, um, left its entrails kind of, we opened them. So it's a lot easier for all the other animals in the Arctic to access them. So by the time we had, um, you know, maybe by hour one, there was a lot of crows and ravens just sort of circling and waiting. And actually I didn't write about this in the book, but a day later, um, we saw a grizzly bear who was, um, on the carcass of the caribou that we had left, you know, what was sort of left and unusable. Yeah. But did you talk? We did. Donnie sort of walked me through what we were doing. It was sort of an education for me, which was really fascinating because, you know, we have all the, all these different terms um, for meat from the grocery store. Right. It's like, uh, this is a T-bone. This is a, what are all these kind of like, yeah, you, they're almost euphemisms that are put in place. So you don't have to be reminded that, oh, this is, this is a muscle from an animal. Yeah. Yeah. So Donnie would say, you know, this is the muscle that runs down his spine. We call this the back strap, but in cows, they call this the ribeye or whatever it is. I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, but so that was really fascinating to learn. Oh, like these, you know, I kind of describe it in the book. It's like, meat just sort of magically appears at the grocery store in everyday life. And it's, and it is uh, prepared in such a way to make it uh, not seem as if it came from a living creature. You know, we use these different terms for it. It's really shiny and in the styrofoam plastic wrap. And I think that part of that is the, to sort of not have to remind us what goes into that, you know, oh, could you sure. imagine if they, if they just had like a cow hanging at your, at your local grocer and like some, some obscure places will do this, but at the yeah. average, you know, Walmart, they're not chopping cows in the back. Yeah. So in the middle of this Masogi is another Masogi, a mini Masogi within a Masogi. You, you carried, at this point, you're five miles from the camp, mm-hmm. I think. And now you've got to get your gear and your caribou. You mentioned it in passing, very important thing of this part of the story, though, is that you're going to eat it. This is not a trophy. You're going to eat it. Yeah. You're going to, as much as you can, um, and you're not just going to eat it there. You're going to ship it, take it back with you, and eat it later. It's a really an amazing, uh, powerful thing. Yeah. Uh, but but you've got to go from where you where the animal fell back to the mm-hmm. teepee. Five miles, most of I think it all uphill, actually, most of it, almost all of it. Uh, it's a big animal. You've got your regular gear with you already or no? So we left our regular gear at, right. at camp. So our packs were relatively light at that point, but they wouldn't be once we filled it up with, uh, with meat. So you're taking, what, what's it weigh at this point? 100 pounds, maybe? Over 100 pounds, pack weights were, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's a good pack, but... Hard to do. Yeah. And so that description, we don't have to go into it now, but that some of my favorite parts of the book is is the mental experience of um plus you're the newcomer. You're you've got yeah. a show uh you know, I, I've heard of hiking trips where, you know, some 
large, strong person takes someone else's pack in an act of kindness or half their stuff or three quarters of their stuff or it happens. Uh, they weren't going to do that. <laughs> they weren't, that's not the kind of deal <laughs> no. that you signed up for. So you kind of had to, you had to get home. Yeah. Wasn't easy. Yeah. It doesn't sound easy. I got, I got, my, I'm telling you, I, I'm going to sleep better tonight from the tired I felt reading about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we the pack is over 100 pounds, and the rule is that the hunter has to take out the, the heaviest pack. So mine Seems- was uh, was heaviest. And, you know, for some background, I was on staff at Men's Health for a lot of years. I've covered a lot of different sort of interesting stuff in the physical fitness space. So I've been thrown into some extreme gyms and done some extreme outdoor stuff. And I can tell you that packing that caribou out was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, your pack is very heavy. The tundra is not the sidewalk. Yeah. The tundra is one of the hardest things to walk on in the world. It's uh, it's very strange. I sort of describe it as a mattress that is covered in partially inflated basketballs. So the mattress part is this soft frozen ground and the basketballs are these things called tundra tussocks, which are these big tufts of uh, dense grass. So where do you step, right? If you step on the mattress, it takes a lot of energy out of your step. Every step is harder. But if you step on the basketballs, you might roll an ankle. And when you have a hundred pounds on your back, that roll could easily become a fracture. And, um, it also got me thinking, and I get into this in the book that, you know, humans, uh, seem to be built the way we are because we evolved to run. We would slowly, but surely run down prey in the heat until the animal we were chasing toppled over from exhaustion. And then we would spirit. So this might take 10 miles, 15 miles. This is called persistence hunting. But after we'd spirit, I kind of had this realization. What would we do? We would have to carry it back, right? And so I wondered how did that shape us, this idea of carrying weight over distance. And so I followed up with some anthropologists at Harvard, and they're doing research into carrying and how it shaped uh, humans. So, you know, you look at our, we have certain adaptations that make us uniquely good at carrying. We are the only animals that can carry loads over distance. And today, a lot of people jog. They do this thing that we used to have to do when we evolved. But how many people for exercise carry weight over distance? <laughs> not too many, right? It's not too common. Um, but I did find one tribe of people who, who do, and that is uh, special forces soldiers. So the idea of uh, what they call rucking, which is having a heavy load in the backpack, this is the foundation of all military fitness and it physical is. training. It is. Yeah. And um it's really shaped them into some of you know the, the fittest band of people in the world. And I also met with some doctors at the Mayo Clinic who are now prescribing rucking to patients because it, uh, one, has great cardiovascular benefits, makes walking a lot harder, more or less. But number two, and this is important, is that it adds an element of strength to – it has a strength element. Now, a lot of people get their cardiovascular um, exercise in, but – a lot of people, especially women, um, really miss the mark when it comes to strength training. But that is equally important uh, for our health. So it's kind of this two-in-one. One of the, one of the uh, Green Berets that I spoke to said, you know, it's kind of like lifting for people who hate the gym and cardio for people who hate to run. So it was kind of this little fascinating dive into this other form of discomfort that we've, 
lost over time and haven't re-engineered back into our lives. Yeah, your your story reminded me a a bit, I'm sure some listeners are thinking about as well, the recent episode with Sebastian Younger and his 400-mile walk across the countryside with a very heavy weight and hot heat. And he talks, I I think we talked about on the program, uh, our ability as humans in in our past to run down prey. Uh, We're not the fastest animal. We're not the strongest. But we have some gifts that have served us well, and we have let those um, stultify, which is, uh, it gives me pause. I, I like to walk. Uh, I don't like to walk with weight. I'm, I'm thinking of taking it up, so uh, I might become a rucker. Yeah. Um, I want to talk, talk about death, because there's some very interesting thoughts about death and mortality in the book. But I want to, before we get there, I want to go back to Marcus Elliott, the person you got this idea of the Masogi from, and the some of the goofy annual stuff that, that he does. He said something really interesting, I thought, that you quote him saying. He said, uh, he says that um, a, a benefit of Masogi is what Elliot called, quote, creating impressions in your scrapbook. If you're seeing and doing all the same things over and over, your scrapbook looks pretty empty when you take inventory of your life. So we need to do more novel things to start creating more impressions in our scrapbooks so we don't feel like the years are flying by. I mean, you remember every single detail of novel, meaningful experiences. You have no chance to forget them the rest of your life, close quote. And I just, you know, I've been thinking a lot and, and writing about this idea of the narrative we tell ourselves about our life. And I tend to think about it as a, um, the overarching narrative. You know, I'm an economist, or I'm a parent, or I'm a spouse, or a friend. These are different identities we have for ourselves, I think, play a much richer role in our in our lives, above and beyond the actual activities. So it's not just that I spend time with my kids that is both pleasant and sometimes stressful, when they're, especially when they're younger, but rather being a parent changes who I am. And I think, but this scrapbook idea and, and challenging yourself to do interesting things, uh, I, I do find it interesting how much the handful of things that I've done that were both physically demanding or intellectually demanding, either one, they do, they fill up my narrative. When I replay or think about the movie of my life, uh, they play a big role. And, and as Elliot points out, somehow I've got a lot more detail about those. I remember a lot more about those things because they're not part of the routine of, you know, get up check your email, it's the same stuff over and over and over again. So I'm sure that for you, when you finish, having finished that experience, it's, it enriches today in a way that that's different than if you hadn't done it. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's not a surprise that I think people tend to fall into routine, that we tend to do the same thing day in and day out. You know, as we evolved, if we could predict the future, and kind of have a build a routine that was reliable for getting food, for avoiding danger. That's what we do. Rinse and repeat every day. That kept us alive. Well, nowadays, we're not facing those challenges, but we still have this propensity to want to get into a routine. And what happens is there's some research that suggests your mind basically alt- uh, goes into a sort of autopilot mode where you're just, you're just kind of going through the routine. You're not really present and focused. And what happens when you do something new, something challenging, something novel, so all of a sudden you get kicked out of that autopilot mode because you cannot predict what's going to happen. You have to focus because this is a new experience you're having. So I think it tends to leave those impressions in your scrapbook. It creates 
lasting memories. And to your point, you know, you can probably name those two classes you took that were totally out of your comfort zone because it was like, I'm challenged. I have the, you know, these things it's, we really remember the times where we're doing something new and novel often with an element of challenge, you know, at the end of your life, I don't think people are going to be on their deathbed and be like, man, I'm so glad that I watched season seven of billions multiple <laughs> times. That, that was just great. That was the highlight, right? You're going to name these really new moments that often have their challenge, challenges to your point, raising kids, you know, these classes you took that were out of your comfort zone and on and on. Yeah. And you mentioned mindfulness in passing in the book, not in passing, but you spent a little bit of time on it. And I think one of the interesting aspects of routine is how the brain just stops observing stuff after a while. Um, you you don't see the picture that you've kept framed over your mantle that, that's been there for 10 years. Literally, you don't see it. it your brain just sort of edits it out because it doesn't need to or, or it just fills it in and and you don't appreciate it anymore. It just becomes, uh, you know, the the, new, the first time guest to your house goes, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And you say, oh, yeah. And, and you forget you've seen it a thousand times, but you've only really looked at it maybe a few times in the last 10 years. And yeah. I think the challenge of life for especially modernity to some extent is appreciating the the beauty and, and interest that, that is around us. But that if we're not careful, just becomes part of our routine uh, and as anything from flowers in our gardens to or on our walk to work or the birds that, you know, that swoop around uh, to the paintings and, and things we framed in our homes. And it, I, it, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I agree. And I think that's something else when you start to pay attention, when you start to be, maybe put yourself in moments where you're forced into attention, it can also really enhance your gratitude. So when I had to fly up to, I had to take six flights to get to where we ultimately ended up. But of course, a couple of those flights run these massive 747s. Now I hate flying. The seats are cramped. My knees are up into my throat. The TV and the seat back in front of me plays crappy movies. The coffee sucks on flights, right? The bathroom's too small. There's all these things that I hate about flying. (laughs) Now I spend a month in the Arctic. I am freezing cold the entire time. If I want water, I have to hike down to a stream, get it in a water bag basically and carry it back up there are grizzlies by that stream i have to carry everything the coffee it sucks it's instant right we don't even have coffee most of the time there are all these things if i want to go to the bathroom i have to walk out and you know do it out there so after the month in the arctic when i get on my return flight back to las vegas how do you think i felt about that 747 (laughs) it was heaven i had not sat in a chair much less a soft one, for a month. I had not been stimulated by a screen for a month. Those movies, those crappy movies, they were thrilling. They were some (laughs) of the most interesting movies ever. I got up, walked down the aisle, went into that closet-sized bathroom. It was warm. The water coming from the faucet was warm. When it hit my hands, it was like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. This is the most amazing thing I've ever felt in my life. Totally changed my perspective on how good we as humans have it today. And I think we often lose sight of that. We just kind of, we go through life and, you know, all this stuff is here and it's just here and it's always been here. We don't have these moments that press back at us and be like, no, this thing, this thing that you take for granted every single day, climate control, hot water, the fact that you have a car, you don't have to walk, all these other things. 
They are unbelievable. And here we are talking. You're in California? Or you're in, in Las Vegas. Vegas. Sorry, you're in the Pacific mm-hmm. time zone. And I am in uh, Jerusalem, Israel. And we're talking. It's not quite as good as being face-to-face, but I'm not noticing a big lag on the video. It may be hard for, for viewers to watch. But we're having a great conversation. And this is a this is a miracle beyond imagining, you know, that yes. I can talk to the author of a book and share And you out there listening can share it and enjoy it. We can share it with you that it's what a great world we live in. And yet it's, after a while, it's, it's like crazy. Oh, I had a hard time logging into zoom. I'm really annoyed. <laughs> yes. And there is a good reason for this. So I talked to these, uh, to a psychologist at Harvard who did this really interesting study that basically finds that the human brain, uh, evolved to look for problems. And we can, we compare everything to the last thing that happened to us. So, you know, as the world gets better and better, we don't have a great ability to look back, you know, 300 years and go, oh man, I have it so good compared to that. We just kind of look for the next problem, but our problems are increasingly hollow. So, you know, back to like, oh man, there's a lag on my zoom logging in or, you know, first world problems. And, and that, that is what we focus our time on. And, so I think, you know, for me, at least coming back, all of a sudden I have all this gratitude and all of a sudden I'm less of, I'm, I'm harder to rattle. You know, I would normally be the person at a restaurant where if everything's great, but they're slow filling up my water. I'm like, <laughs> oh man, this place, this waiter, this is, this is unacceptable. And now I'm just like, yeah, I didn't have to walk a mile to yeah, get this water. Great. It'll, it'll be there eventually. <laughs> this is awesome. This place is warm. This is more <laughs> calories in a single meal than I would eat in a single day in Alaska. You know? So, uh, one more thing before we get to death, uh, very appropriate. Um, it, you killed that caribou with maybe the first shot, but certainly two at a hundred something yards. You mentioned in the book that you'd, You'd shot targets at a thousand yards when you practiced for this. Do you ever shot mm-hmm. a rifle before? Uh, I had a, I had experience with guns. I didn't have much uh, rifle experience, so that's why I had um, I contacted a guy through through a different network. You who practiced a, just for the practiced. record. That's all I want to make yeah, clear. I just want to let listeners lot. know that this is like this is amazing. I mean, I'm sure besides the emotional upheaval of of taking an animal's life, the macho challenge of shooting a rifle in front of two other people um and missing that must have been on your mind too i assume yeah and and i think it does go back to that idea of impressions in my in my scrapbook you know before my days were totally routine when i decide i'm going to go up to the arctic it's like you have to totally change your lifestyle because you need to get ready for this thing yeah i mean i had to change my exercise routine um my patterns in the evening totally changed. You know, all of a sudden I have to read all these books about the Arctic landscape, wildlife, all this different stuff. I have to take, I have to meet up with this guy who's a, um, he's a federal agent uh, and a competitive rifle shooter. And he teaches me how to shoot a rifle really well, you know, put in a lot of time doing that. And, um, and then when I get up there, I don't know if I'm ready, but I'm closer than I was, right? Yeah. So, but that's and so and scary. I remember all that. <laughs> it's so scary, uh, right? The fear of failure. We didn't talk about it. You don't write about it literally, explicitly much. It's a little, but um, that is part of this. It's not just um, that you won't do this task that you were trying to do. There's shame and disappointment, and so anyway, uh, my hats off to you. It's a um, it's a um, 
inspiring story and not that I and one that I wouldn't have expected to be inspiring. Um, so that was very cool. But in the in the course of the book, you write about death, and, and you write about it because you're interested in this question of whether we as Americans in the West have and the West generally have have shied away from it, and we clearly have. Uh, you mentioned the 19th century. Um, uh, I know from the book Lincoln at Gettysburg. People used to go in the 19th century. They would, they'd have a Sunday. They'd go hang out in a cemetery for the moral uplift of remembering one's own mortality. Um, I had a teacher. I think it's true. He famously, among his friends, at least, uh, he built a he built a coffin, and he kept it in his attic, and he used to lay down in it. I don't know how often he did it. Once would be plenty for me, uh, or, or zero. But but. And as I get older, I start to think, that's an interesting practice. I'm not sure I could do it, but it is provocative. And I think funerals are really powerful experiences. I used to, you know, dread them and shy away from them. And um, so you go to Bhutan or Bhutan and you talk to some Buddhists about death. And the part that grabbed me was that uh, we're all walking, marching, running, toward a 500-foot cliff that we have to go over, and it's over. Mm-hmm. And there's two ways to deal with that, or think two ways to approach it. One way is, let's pretend there's no cliff. And the other way is to remember often that there's a cliff. Uh, mm-hmm. So talk about those two choices. Yeah, so I, you know, after hunting, I, I just got interested in this idea of, you know, why I didn't want to hunt in the first place, how... I think we in America, you know, we are removed from death and we do want to ignore it. And this goes from our food system to our funeral system. And in Bhutan, they view death a lot differently. So the citizens are instructed to think about death anywhere from one to three times a day. And to sort of get to the heart of this, I met with a handful of people, but one of them um, is a Kempo, which is a high up um, position in uh, the Buddhist faith. And to get to this guy, um, you have to hire a driver in Bhutan. Uh, tourists do. We had to drive up this rutted out cliffside road for miles. And my driver was like Baja 500 in this little smart car, you know, to get us up there. And the guy lives in this um, shack that's sort of in the um, shadow of this big monastery. And I sat with him for a couple hours and it was, it was really fascinating. And yeah, he basically stated that, you know, in America, we, uh, we don't want to think about the cliff. We're just going to ignore that the cliff is there. The cliff is there. We are all walking towards it this very second. By realizing that there's a cliff there can change your behavior. By really being aware that there's a cliff, you are maybe going to say things differently to the people that you are walking towards this cliff with, right? Maybe you're going to slow down and pay attention to the beautiful nature around the cliff. So the idea really is that by becoming aware of your own impermanence, it has the ability to change your behavior in a positive way. You don't take things for granted. Maybe you don't slip into those routines that we do all the time, or maybe you question the routine. Why am I doing this? This ride is going to end. Is this how I want to spend my time on this ride? You're also, and I've experienced this myself. If I'm aware that um, I'm going to die one day and the people that I interact with are too. I just don't find myself getting as worked up about the stuff that used to work me up the small stuff, right? Those little squabbles that we get. And it's kind of just like, yeah, 
Yeah. Whatever. You know, I can focus on that which is most important. And it seems to, you know, there's some research around this that's really interesting, but it, it seems to improve people's quality of life and improve happiness because it, it changes your behavior, changes your behavior. Now, to bring it back to the theme of the book being, you know, comfort, discomfort, really taking into your mind that you are one day going to die is the most uncomfortable thing you could oh. ever think about. <laughs> When you run this through your mind, and I've had moments where, I mean, I will willingly admit when I've had like the moments where you really understand this, I will sob like a child in my bed. Oh, sure. But guess what? The next day, I still have that in the back of my mind and my behavior is different. And I think that I'm more present. I'm more aware. I make decisions that um, improve my well-being, not only mine, but also those of the people that I love, right? I'm just a more present, engaged human. And I realize the clock is ticking. So let's not waste this time. Yeah. I think it's two things. I, I think, you know, seize the day is obviously a, a good idea. Carpe diem is, is obviously wise. You know, you can't do everything. I've, we've talked on the program recently about the fact that, you know, if you read a, a book a week for 50 years, you get 2,500 books to read. So read the good ones. That's just one example of being aware that you keep, you're not going to read every book you might want to read, so choose wisely. But I think it's so much more than that. I, when you say change your behavior, I, I think it includes what I think is even more important, which is it changes how you experience everything you do. I, mm-hmm. I think one of the great benefits of getting older, uh, I've always, I've never thought about being old. Um, you know, I'm 66. Uh, I was I was a professor most of my life, and um, I think being a professor is a pretty stressless job. And um, you think you're gonna you're hanging out with young people, and you think you're gonna live forever, and then one day you realize you're not. Uh, partly because you're getting older, and your body starts to remind you, and partly because people you love are no longer with you, and it it should make you sad, and it it and that's you. Sometimes you sob like a baby because it makes you sad, but it also sometimes when I am deeply moved emotionally about my own mortality, it's not because I'm sad. It's just because how wonderful it is and how it, it's so much of a bittersweet emotion. It's it's bitter because it's going to end, but it's sweet because it's so precious. And I, I just think that that I don't know if it's an awareness so much. I don't know if you need to say it three times a day or pause to men- meditate on it three times a day. But I think it's the when you encounter your own mortality or, or realization of that, it just everything becomes richer. That whole routine yeah. thing is out the window. Uh, every breath you take is precious. Every you know the sunshine is precious. The moon rising is precious. Venus setting at. at sunset is precious uh the smile of your wife it, it's i mean it's all precious and I mortality agree. helps yeah. you helps you savor that in a way that um that makes it special and i you know living forever seems like a good idea it's another example by the way our urge for comfort our urge to to extend our life um i think is part of the same mistaken effort to idea of what where deep meaning comes from. It's just, yeah, it's the I wrong agree. way to go. Yeah. I love, I love what you said about that too. I remember one time I'm, my wife and I are in the car and this, uh, it's kind of like a cloudy day, but the clouds are really interesting with different grays and blacks. And this, uh, 
flock of geese flies above the car and I see it and it's like, I'm aware of it. And I just start crying because it's one of the most beautiful things yeah. I've ever seen. And my wife just looks at me and is like, what the- <laughs> what's up? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Right. But I, but I'm going to remember that forever. And it's like this deep um, feeling of just appreciation for, for everything we have and for the ability to be sort of aware in moments like that and really savor and appreciate them. I mean, the more moments you have like that in life, man, that's what life is about, right? Yeah. And then there's the human encounter where when I was younger, someone might share something with me that I just don't want to hear. It's depressing. And it's about something that happened to them. And my mind is not really taking in the words because my mind is screaming, run away. (laughs) Don't listen. Think about something else. Don't want to hear it. And at some point, I think partly because I went on those silent meditation retreats, I I looked for those opportunities, and a handful have come my way since then, and they're some of my favorite moments of being alive. And, yeah. and in one of them, the person actually said to me in the middle of it, you don't want to hear this. And I looked at her, and I said, yes, I do. And I meant it. It wasn't just politeness. And what she told me was one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced about a, something that had happened to her that she needed to tell somebody. And I think... Um, Boy, those are precious gifts to have to be able to have that. And I missed most of them when I was younger. Um, you know, I was afraid to hear them, didn't want to hear them. And part of that's running, I think, for mortality. These, you know, stories about horrible things that happen to people, or the, you know, the painfulness of the world generally. You just want to say, right, let, me, let me, I'm going to go watch that Netflix season I like. And um, I think as you get older, and if you're lucky, it happens when you're younger. You, you realize that those are the best moments. They're not the ones to run away from. Yeah, hundred percent. hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, You can be there for life more or less, right? Yeah. Right. You you can actually be alive. What a crazy (laughs) idea. Imagine Uh, that. Well, let's, let's close with um, what's next for you. And I don't mean what's your next book project. Are you going to, how did this experience? And obviously the book was more than just the, the month in the Arctic, the whole bunch of things that you thought about for a long time as you wrote it. You, you say you're a little more resilient, you're a little more patient, sounds like a little more uh, less, I think what your wife said, less easily rattled. I think you alluded to that earlier in our conversation. Do you see yourself going back to the Arctic? Or are you going to go try to kill a caribou with a bow and arrow? You know, one of the challenges of these, once you take on this mentality, is you can't just, can't go every year to the Arctic because that's like routine. <laughs> Although it's never yeah. really routine, actually, I'm sure. But it's when the you know the plane goes down and you gotta cut your leg off and amputate your own leg and all those things you learned in your medical training before. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a little challenging. Uh, yeah, re- relieving the brain aneurysm with the handheld drill. On anyway, yes, yes. but sorry, I'm, I'm in tasteless ground here. But I'm curious: Are you? Do you have plans? Does it change your workout like to- routine? Did it change your? Your physical demands on yourself? Yeah, I think it, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I'd been at the men's health magazine for a long time and the way that I approach physical activity is totally different after this. The way that I approach food is very different after this. The way that I approach life in general um, is very different. And I think, you know, one of the main benefits of, of the trip was gratitude. And so for me, I think it's thinking of 
what are other ways I can get this? What's the next sort of masogi, if you will, this sort of thing I'm going to challenge myself with because I'll have to prepare for it. Um, I'll learn something along the way and it'll be valuable. And I, you know, I don't think that the masogi will always be some big outdoor thing, you know, to your point about a silent meditation retreat. That sounds kind of interesting. I could probably learn something about what's going on upstairs there, you know, so something like that sounds interesting. I think it's sort of keeping that open and saying yes to things that that come my way. Cause I think a lot of times in, in modern life, we can get caught in the narrative of, well, I have to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, why? You know, you ask why six times, you might be stumped. And if you're stumped, then maybe you don't know everything, right? So I think um, I think being open to new experiences is really just what I'm shooting for. My guest today has been Michael Easter. His book is The Comfort Crisis. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.